0: If you brought a Bible with you this morning, would you go to the book of 2 Corinthians? Maybe you have it on your phone or you have a hard copy. Feel free to join along that way. If you don't have one, the words will be up on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love the phrase that Michael just used a minute ago, stretching your imagination, because that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to stretch your imagination a little bit. I'm going to ask you right now, if you would, picture in your mind someone whom you may have lost recently, someone who's passed on. And keep that image in your mind, how you might be picturing that person right now. And as we step over into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you're going to discover promises from God about what's waiting for you, but what they're experiencing right now. Before we step into any of that, I'd like to pray with you and ask God to be our teacher. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I praise you for what we're about to experience, that you will be our teacher, you will be our guide as we journey into a realm that we can only capture through our imagination because of the words you caused writers to put down 2,000 years ago, things that you want us to be reminded of about what's waiting for us. I ask specifically as we think of loved ones, Father, that are gone, that are in your arms right now, that you would press this upon our heart and this very encouraging word that comes from you about what's waiting, what's in store, especially as we get our hearts ready to take communion this morning. So God, be our teacher. We ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would instruct us, maybe not even cause us to see new things, but to remind us of old things that we knew and perhaps forgot. Father, I pray that you'd be close to each one of us, and we do that in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Well, the human mortality rate on this planet is constant. It's 100%. God says that's the way it's going to be. He says it's appointed unto man once to die. So the mortality rate is 100%. We don't like it, but God guarantees it, and every 1.7 seconds on this planet someone steps into eternity that means death remains our greatest enemy God says it's the last enemy that will be abolished and when he wipes it out it will be gone for good but now it's a present reality but what happens when we die what do we experience What's waiting for us on the other side? What do our loved ones already experience? Well, the the Bible doesn't give precise details, but it does give clues, and I want to explore those clues with you before we get ready to take communion. So as we explore these clues, we we look at the promises, some of the promises that were made. We can expect what is to come because of some of the things that Jesus said, promises that he made 2,000 years ago. And by anyone's measurement, 2,000 years is a long time to wait for a promise. It's so long that you can find yourself forgetting. And especially as you stand on the threshold of a brand new year, you can forget what the promises are and what's waiting for us. So let's just bear down on one verse this morning. This won't take a long time. It's going to go pretty quick, actually. Let's just bear down on 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now these physical bodies that we have, they have been mercilessly battered by the effects of the fall. We know that. We live with it. We watch people pass into eternity. And because of personal sin and because of hardship and just because of the severity of life on this planet, we feel it every single day. The effects of gravity and radiation alone are strong reminders for us. And in the midst of all of that reality, we've got this promise. The Bible says we can actually have confidence. And if you've already pulled the notes out of your bulletin this morning, you see that this is just called confident this morning because you can be confident about this. Because Paul starts out in verse 1 by saying, we know, he's talking about this with a certainty, we absolutely know this to be true, that believers are going to have a new body. There's something that's waiting for you, and it's not a wish. It's absolutely anchored in truth. Let me give you a couple of those. You might want to write them down maybe in the back of your Bible or or in your notes. Here's the first one from Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he's talking about the physical body who will transform the body of our humble state. It's a humble state, the Bible says, that you're dwelling in right now will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Or this that Paul wrote down in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I'm talking about the physical glory of what your translation of your body is going to be like. Uh, you and I, we stand right here on the rim of 2020. Many people have made resolutions already. Some of you are six days into those resolutions. Some of you are five days into the failure of that resolution. Right? We, we know what that is. And the difficulty with New Year's resolution is it's based in our strength. It's based in our capacity, the, the things that we believe that we can resolve to do. Well, These future things we're speaking of this morning... These are rooted in the word of God. They're they're promises that are based in God's word. So it's not speculation and it's not wishful thinking. So that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, fails, and let's just bear down on that earthly tent thought for a moment. The human body that you have right now, this physical body is a temporary home for your eternal soul. In other words, this isn't the body you're going to be carrying with you into eternity. John wrote from that exact same language when he wrote about God the Son becoming Jesus the man on planet Earth. When Jesus came, we're really familiar with this verse from Christmas time. It talks about him dwelling with us. Look with me on the screen at John chapter 1. John phrased it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you've already looked in your notes this morning, you see a couple of Greek words, and one of those is the word skinuo. Skinuo is tenting. So, what we're reading here from what John wrote down is that the word became flesh and tented among us. Well, that's the same language that Paul's using here in 2 Corinthians. Because the Bible depicts the eternal God coming into this world, God the Son becoming Jesus the man, and taking on human form in the same exact way that you and I live in this tent. So Jesus tented with us. Now this tent is a metaphor for your body. It's just a temporary home for your eternal soul until you get to your real home where you have your real dwelling for your eternal soul. So that means we're strangers in this world. We're, we're here as tourists on this planet. Hebrews 11.13 talks about the fact that we're just pilgrims and strangers wandering on this planet, and I need that perspective. You need that perspective. I need that mindset that I'm just a tourist wandering in this world. Scripture says we're looking for a city whose builder is God the one that he's prepared for us, a real place that you really go to. But in the meantime, we're living as paupers on this planet. Even the wealthiest among us forget that we live as paupers here because there's a vast treasure waiting for us on the other side. It was in the 1980s. I was reading about a man who had discovered oil on his property here in Michigan. And for years, he had lived as a pauper. He was a farmer, barely able to put enough food on the table, trying to harvest enough just from his farm operation to feed his children. And they just seemed to survive hand to mouth. Until at the very end of his life, one of his family members were convinced where they were at in mid-Michigan that there was oil on their property. And sure enough, even though this man had known just poverty all of his life, the family discovered that they'd been sitting on a massive oil well. And now they're rejoicing in the benefits that the future generations get to have. But all those years living as a pauper here, but there was a vast treasure underneath his feet. Believers in Christ should be longing for heaven like a hungry man's longing for food because there's things waiting for us in heaven. You're you're dwelling in a tent that's going to be replaced with something that's eternal and absolutely imperishable, according to Scripture, Let me show you this on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 42. It is sown, it's talking about our physical body. It's sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Aptharsia is the Greek word that goes with that, imperishable, and you see it in your notes, you see it on the screen as well. Aptharsia is this definition for something that's incorruptible. So as you're picturing that family member or that friend that's passed on before you right now, think of them having that. They've put on immortality. So you've got to stretch your imagination now. You've got to begin thinking, what's that look like? What is that? Because for now, we've got this tent. We associate things with something that decays. We we get sick. This, This tent gets flabby, right? I don't get too many amens out of that one. It does. We get fevers. I, on Christmas Eve night, you know, we're doing the third service here and we had just a great time together as a church, but I got hit with the flu and the third service, I told my wife, I, I felt like I was just going to be knocked over. I was so weak at that point and uh, it hit hard the next day and, and I'm not a very pleasant person to be around when I get a fever. I was just aching and that's what this tent is. It aches, it hurts. I'm glad to be on this side of it because I don't like that kind of pain. We do get flabby. We, we do get sick. We do get cancer. And our eyes wear out and our teeth wear out and our ears wear out. And if you're under 30, you wonder what I'm talking about right now. You just wait. It's coming. I promise you. It's guaranteed because of what we experience here. So Paul writes in verse 1, he says, our house is torn down. What's he talking about? He's talking about disease and death and how it dismantles your tent. And given enough time, for some it's slower than others, it will wear out. It will eventually happen to every one of us. But he goes on to say, you have a future building from God. He writes it this way, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Well, I just want to bear down on that four or five word statement with you. The house not made with hands. How do I understand that? This is really consistent with what Jesus was speaking of. Just before the crucifixion, he's walking with some of his followers through the temple courtyard, and he began talking about rebuilding a temple. Well, they thought he was talking about the physical building of the temple that was in front of them, but he was actually talking about his resurrection body. Look with me on the screen at this, Mark 14, 58. In three days, I will build another made without hands. That's the same language that Paul's using. Paul may have been leaning into the same things that Jesus said because this phrase is used repeatedly throughout the Bible, something made without hands. Jesus is speaking of the resurrection body, in other words, not a procreated body, not something that is the result of a man and a woman coming together and procreating and producing another human being. He says something made without hands, without human hands. That means it's been built by God. Now, perhaps the most definitive use of that phrase is found in the book of Hebrews, it's referring to Jesus again but it's going from a different angle. Just look with me at the way that it's used though in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, there's the phrase, and here's how he clarifies it. That is to say not of this creation. That that means something that you've not experienced before, something that you've not seen. How do I understand that? Well, Paul gives a detailed description, and I'm going to challenge you to read about it later today. It's too long. We're not going to get into it this morning. We're ready to go to communion. But write this down if you're interested in reading about it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36 through 49, 15 verses long, but he talks about it, and here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm just going to compress it down into four bullet points for you. Here's what he's talking about when he talks about the resurrection body, and it is radically different from what you know. First thing he says is it's sown in a perishable body. That means what you currently have right now, but it's raised imperishable. I kind of get that because we just looked at that definition, antharsia for imperishable something that won't decay, something that won't rot, something that won't diminish. But he goes one step further. He says it's sown in dishonor. That's what you currently have, but it's raised in glory. That means what you're going to have will be capable of being in the presence of the living God. Because right now the Bible says that no man can see God and live in your present form. So you need something that will survive in God's presence without you being incinerated. So, Scripture goes on to describe the fact that that's a reality. You'll be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. You're going to need that because you're built for eternity at that point. Who among us here would want to have this same physical body a thousand years into eternity? All right? Not me. I wouldn't want to have it a hundred years into eternity. So, you're going to have something that's raised in power, capable of, of existing 1,000, 10,000, 50,000 years. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, that one really registers with me because of what we just did here in singing. We're told that those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. We worship him that way now. But in eternity, can you imagine the sound of singing with those who are gathered around you with perfect body, with perfect vocal cords, with perfect pitch, and the ability to sing like the angels. That's especially significant to me as I think back to what we just experienced here, at Christmas Eve. I challenge you to do this if you haven't done it yet. Go to our Facebook page and just play the 30 second clip of the Christmas Eve service of y'all gathered together when we did Silent Night. And Michael stopped playing, and it was just the voices of the church by the hundreds lifted up in voice in unison, and magnify that times 10 trillion when you get into eternity. The voices put together to worship in spiritual form combined with the physical form you'll be given. So your resurrection body is gonna be imperishable, it's gonna be powerful. And praise God for this reality, it will be free from sin, amen? You won't know sin anymore. Completely free of that. So this might be good. You might like the body that you have right now. Maybe you're not that crazy about it. It may be good, but the next is perfect. In this form, we groan. That's what Scripture says very, very clearly. And Paul writes about this in Romans eight twenty two. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then he steps it up one notch. Verse 23 makes it real personal. Verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves because we're waiting. Waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. So let's just do a little Q&A together. I'll I'll ask the question and I'll provide the answer as well. Will we be in physical form? How do we understand that? Well, we understand it because of the resurrected body of Christ. And here's where you can begin thinking of that loved one of yours that's passed on. In, In my family, we've lost a couple family members just in the last couple months. And my mind goes to these images when I think of them. Yours could too as well. How do we understand the physical form? Well, we begin thinking of what Jesus was like as a resurrected individual, his resurrected body. What do we know about it? Well, he was in the same form, in other words, a humanoid form, but he wasn't completely recognizable. When Mary saw him, she thought he was the gardener or some other stranger she hadn't met, even though she'd spent years with him at that point. Yet he still had an appearance or he had the scars literally in his hands. The holes were still there, but until he spoke, she didn't know that it was him. So he's altered enough in his looks to confuse even people who knew him. Yet he could pass through walls and his body could cross vast distances in the blink of an eye and ultimately ascend into heaven with no aid whatsoever, yet he ate food. So he walked after the resurrection, he talked after the resurrection, Yet he appeared and disappeared into thin air. We then think, well, okay, with that kind of change, how are we going to know each other? How how does that work? I read one old theologian this week who said this, we may be sure of this thing, we will not know less in heaven than what we know now. Okay, I'm good with that, but I need a little bit of biblical evidence to go with that. How do I understand that? Well, look with me at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says but now we see now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i am fully known how does god know you right now well god knows you without any blinders whatsoever he knows you fully so he sees you with all your imperfections, yet he sees your heart that's been made righteous by Jesus if you're a believer in Christ. So he knows you completely, he knows you intimately, he knows you inside and out, nothing is hidden. He sees us as we really are. So we'll know each other as God knows us according to what Scripture is saying because all the perfections, imperfections of this life will be removed There'll be no sin nature on you, perfect in your appearance. So that takes us to a related question. How old will we be in eternity? I would go with this thought, ageless, and I'll support it with an image from Scripture. But just let your mind go with this. If, if you know of someone who lost a child perhaps when they were one or two years of age, would you want that one or two-year-old to be a one or two-year-old for billions of years? Or would you rather see them be fully functioning as a, an adult-sized figure, able to walk and talk themselves? Well, absolutely. If you're 90 years old, would you want to remain as a 90-year-old throughout all of eternity? Or would you rather look like a 22-year-old? Well, we can go with that pretty quickly. We know where our mind lends that, but that's just wish on our part. How do we understand this thought of being ageless, yet knowing each other, even though there's alteration? We know that growing old is an effect of sin. It's the result of sin, the fall of this planet. So just let your mind go with this imagery for a minute. Jesus invited Peter, James, and John to go for a walk with him. He asks the other remaining disciples to remain behind, and they ascend to the hillside. In the Bible, it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes them up to a high place, and he begins praying, and out of thin air appears Moses and Elijah. And we're told in that moment, when Jesus begins talking with Moses and Elijah, he begins, if you will, glowing. There's an effervescent radiance that appears around him. And it apparently is encompassing all of Moses and all of Elijah. And it it causes such shock for Peter, James, and John, they begin talking about nonsense things. Like, should we even build shelters here so we can remain? Here's the remarkable thing in the midst of that story Peter, James, and John have never met Moses and Elijah, they've been dead hundreds of years by that point. And I guarantee you they're not wearing name tags that says, I'm Moses or, hello, I'm Elijah. But yet they recognize them instantly to the point where they call them by name and they know who they are. Something about being known and knowing in the midst of that verse pops out to me. In this thought, in heaven there will be no strangers Because Peter and James and John are in that tent form. They're still fallen at that point, yet they immediately recognize Moses and Elijah. I carry that thought over to this last couple thoughts as we wrap this up. The Bible teaches the moment that we die, we go instantly into the presence of God. In other words, no purgatory. I don't know what you were raised with, what tradition might be, your background. After the 9 o'clock service, people who had been raised in the Catholic faith told me that they had been taught about purgatory as kids, and they just wondered where that came from. And I want you to know that there is no thought of purgatory in the Bible. That's a tradition of man. Purgatory is essentially saying that Jesus didn't do enough on the cross and that there needs to be more done. There is no purgatory. You can't find it in the Bible or support it from the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Are you good with that? It's, it's, I'm good with that. I want to know that the Jesus died for me, that died for me on the cross, died completely for all of my sin, and there's nothing more to be done. To be absent from the body is to be instantly in God's presence. Here's the last thought, and I'm absolutely certain of this. No one will experience any of the things that we've discussed except by the grace of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate communion this morning because of what Jesus did for us. And when he instituted, he said, you do this to remember what I've done for you. That there is this great promise of these things waiting for you on the other side, and you will inherit something that is absolutely imperishable. And you need to be reminded of that this morning, but you also need to be reminded of the great price that was paid to get us there. So we have communion. And our tradition here at New Hope, if this is new to you, is this, that we always read this paragraph from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in which the instructions were given for taking Communion. I'm just going to give you what Paul wrote down, and this is how it reads. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we allow time for you to do exactly that. Examine yourself. You see tables here in the front, and they're in the back in the atrium. And if you're in the center sections here, please use these tables right here or in the atrium in the back. And if you're in the wings, use the ones on the side over here. That would really help traffic flow. In this meantime, though, we want to take the elements together. So when you pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll receive them together. But this time for you right now, examine yourself. Talk to your Heavenly Father about where you're at in your relationship. If you're able to, would you stand with me? I look out upon God's witnesses. After the first service, I talked to so many people who lost a family member in the last two weeks, some in the last 24 hours. And yet we have the reality that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have the reality that we'll see them again in a much more glorious form than what we knew them here. And they'll see us that way as well all because of what Jesus did for us. So we celebrate this morning. When he held up the bread, he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And when you drink it, drink it in remembrance of what I'm doing for you. Father, I thank you for the witness of this auditorium, for people who are not ashamed. They're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that you redeem us from our sin, but then we look forward to an eternity with you that is unparalleled. It goes beyond what we can imagine, and we freely acknowledge that. I thank you for stretching our mind this morning. You're worthy of the glory and the praise and the honor that's due your name for all that you've done for us. So we lift up this last song to you, Father, because you're worthy of it. In Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.